millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 44 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, December the 1st. First, I'll be talking to Tom Cornell, the Head of Assessments for APAC at Highview, about how Aussies can prepare for the Great Resignation. Several factors contributed to the Great Resignation, and while the pandemic played a crucial role, other underlying issues are also at play. While the Great Resignation gained attention in 2021, it's essential to recognise that the labour market is complex and multiple factors contribute to employment trends. The phenomenon also highlights the changing expectations of workers and the need for employers to adapt to evolving preferences and priorities in the workforce. Tom is a hiring expert with a background in psychometrics and IO psychology, and he'll shed light on how the Great Resignation will affect Australian business. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about how the infrastructure spending by federal and state governments are affecting inflation. But first, let's talk to Tom Cornell. Tom, tell us, what is the Great Resignation? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the Great Resignation is really a, I don't know if you call it a movement or a a shift or a trend we're seeing in that there's been a greater amount of individuals looking to um, leave their current jobs or or pursue uh, new career opportunities. Yeah, really the the coin, the term was actually coined a couple of years back. It it predates the COVID pandemic. We've seen a big increase in, in entrepreneurship as well, which is quite interesting. I think a lot of people who Again, just that time spent at home, able to plan and think about the future, has meant that that's given them the extra push they needed to pursue, you know, their side hustle and perhaps take their business um, from being an idea into something tangible. I think um, so. There's a lot of excitement about trying something new and thinking about what um, what you can be doing differently. Um, and I think people are really starting to think about what's important to them, what really matters. And um, you know, we're living in a time when that kind of nine to five, Monday to Friday grind is is really being challenged. Uh, I mean, I think it's a whole different discussion point altogether. But you think about the four day working week that's being trialed and they're seeing some success. I think people are starting to question, you know, do I actually want to spend, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week in the office, having spent maybe an hour commuting there? Well, that, that raises another issue. That creates a hybrid work model. Mm-hmm, are we mm-hmm. going to see a trend towards that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, you know, a lot of people have had that experience of working from home. I think uh, a lot of people have perhaps adapted to to that. I think um, 
certainly for some people it's harder than others. I mean, I don't have young children, so I know some of my colleagues found it more difficult to actually, hey, now I've got to do everything um, at home but full time. So while on one hand, perhaps being enforced to have to work from home is, is quite challenging, um, having the flexibility and the freedom to choose when and if you go into the office, I think is quite valuable for a lot of people. Uh, I think that people are really missing a lot of the social interaction uh, that's of course being in an office does provide. Um, you, know, you everything when you're having to do it over um, so Zoom or, or, or WebEx, everything's planned, it's structured. You're not going to just uh, reach out to someone and say, "Hey, do you want to jump on a Zoom for two minutes and just have a, a bit of a natter?" Um, so I think some of those those small interactions that we miss, people will will want to get from being able to go in the office um, every now and then. Uh, and so I think that's um, yeah, I think Australia has always been quite good at that. Australia's always ranked quite highly in terms of offering of working from home and flexible working arrangements. Um, but I certainly think we're, we're seeing a bit of a shift towards that globally. So what you're suggesting is we're moving towards, well, on, based on that model, we're talking about an employee's market where uh, it will give them more power looking for work. Absolutely. I think that's really, that is really what we're seeing. There's, there's more of an onus on the employer to make, uh, you know, working environment and the, the, the role itself more attractive to, uh, not only prospective but also current employees to to not only draw that talent in but actually to to retain them um, i think that we're seeing a lot more confidence from employees to to push and to ask more from their employers if we think a few sort of decades back it was very common to have you know, this idea of a job for life you get a job and that offers you structure stability you can work your way up the ranks over the years and, and your pay will come with that Whereas actually now people are starting to question that they're, they're moving jobs in the past every few years, joining startups, trying something new. We're kind of moving away from this idea that employees should you know, be, be grateful. You know, oh, I'm so thankful that I've got this job with this company. You know, I, I don't want to, to, to put any risk to that. I think people are feeling more confident about taking risks and, and trying something new. Certainly sped up over the last last couple of years. I just had to think that um, you know, COVID and the shift to everything going digital, um, that's of course has sped things up a little bit. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, certainly coming from, I guess my background being around the assessment space, certainly predates the, the pandemic by a few years, this, this focus on kind of candidate experience. The idea again, that you, you, know, you can't expect candidates to just jump through multiple hoops and say, well, oh, they want to get this job, they'll, they'll do it. We started to see a shift away from you know, multiple rounds of interviews and these traditional long form assessments and candidates saying, hey, actually, we're not happy with this. So a lot of organizations are putting a big focus on improving that candidate experience. And we're also now seeing that then translate into saying, well, hold on, it's not enough to focus on your prospective employees and make sure that they're happy with the process. You've also got to make sure that you're able to maintain and retain them once they're in the organization. Um, so, you know, I was, I was looking at this, um, I was looking about it a little while back around sort of candidate experience as a search trend in Google started picking up in around 2009, um, but employee experience actually started coming in a lot later, more like 2015, 2016. So maybe they're kind of playing a bit of catch up around saying we need to focus on the entire human experience rather than just on the candidate. Well, this has huge implications for businesses. I mean, uh, how can they actually build a workforce and maintain a workforce in that climate? And what adjustments do they have to make is more to the mm -hmm. point. Well, I think it's as important that you know, they, they make sure that they are listening to their employees and what, what really matters and, and is valued by them. You know, there's certainly plenty of research around you know, different generations and what they tend to value. 
um, you know, generally your uh, sort of older generations would value stability and opportunities to, to generate wealth, whereas the the more sort of uh, the newer generations entering the workforce now they might have a greater emphasis on work-life balance um, and sort of uh, I guess um, opportunities created by your work, perhaps living and traveling abroad. So you can get some general rules and okay, these are the kind of things people are looking for, but you know, that doesn't replace actually speaking to your workforce, having your manager engaging and saying, hey, we know things are tough, we know things are going on right now that um, none of us expected. What can we be doing to make things easier for you and to, to ultimately make you happier? Right, okay, okay. But, uh, but conversely, uh, it would mean the organisation would be have, much, have to be much more in tune with what their workforce is on about and uh, to actually be providing opportunities to move as mm -hmm. well. Would that be right? I don't think necessarily just opportunities to, to move. I don't think that's obviously the, um, the only thing that people are necessarily looking for. Although I certainly do think that the shift to that hybrid workforce is, is creating a trend in that direction. But I think that it's, it's almost not too much to ask. I mean, employers are often saying, hey, we want people who are really agile, who are really flexible. That's a, a you know, the agile mindset is a, it's something we're hearing employers say, we want that in our workforce, we want that in our, our new employees. And so I don't think it's so much for those employees to kind of flip that back on the employer and say, well, great, you want me to be agile and flexible, but that also means I want you to be agile and flexible to what I want and to how I want to do things. Well, the issue is uh, how can employees improve their chances of landing a job? Yeah, I, mean, I think you know, what, what employers are looking for, has, we haven't seen a, a significant shift in terms of, of, of the process from the pandemic. I mean, and I say a couple of things like resilience and that agile mindset, when people are having to you know, be able to work from home, we've seen a bit of an uptick in that. But ultimately, the processes are, are largely the same, you know, interviews and, and assessments, um, but they have, of course, moved to a more, a more digital modality. So I think for candidates who are looking for the job, you know, ultimately, the process is the same. You, know, you, you need to understand the company, you want to understand the role, think about what you have to offer and, and the time that in, just the same as if you're doing it face-to-face -face over the phone or, or via a, a virtual interview. Um, that hasn't really you know, fundamentally changed. What I think is also important is that people really consider the transferable skills that they've they've been able to de develop and learn during the, the pandemic. I think that people have had very different experiences over the last 18 months. You know, some people have lost their job, some people have perhaps out of necessity had to move into a totally different area because you know, the area they were working in before, it, it just collapses as an industry. And so I think that people can take a real focus on, okay, what have I learned from that rather than simply saying, well, I did this the last 18 months and, and, and that defines me. And I think that goes both ways, right? I think not only from a, a candidate looking for a job need to consider the more transferable skills rather than the experience for experience sake. I think employers need to remember we can't make any assumptions about anyone's personal experience or, or why they made certain choices over the last 18 months. We, we can't assume anything about that. So focusing on what they, they bring to the table, uh, the skills they have, the capabilities, rather than their latest job title or, or, or their work experience from the last 18 months is, is really important. And of course, uh, many people would have picked up valuable skills. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that you know, certainly I think the first lockdown, everyone I knew was saying, oh, I'm learning to bake banana bread. I'm going to learn a new language. And I think by this one, people were, were perhaps not quite so optimistic. So I think look, it's not as much as saying, oh, well, you know, I didn't spend you know, all my spare time learning a, a new technology. You know, I, I think that, yeah, while everyone might have started with a great ambition, the reality of lockdown quickly, quickly fitted in. 
Um, but certainly still people have been doing other things, um, people have been getting involved in different ways in the community, um, or, or even just how you've had to adapt to working from home. You know, that actually can show some resilience and some agility. So um, I think people absolutely have a lot of, of positive things that they can bring out from the, the lockdowns that they can then apply to the workforce. And working from home, you'd pick up a whole lot of other skills as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, uh, I think that, um, as I said, I, I don't have children myself, but I certainly know that some of my, my colleagues who do, um, they've certainly had to, um, they're taking on that kind of people management, that structuring their time and being yeah. able to quickly jump off a call to do some homeschooling. Yeah. Um, something like that you know, demonstrates a, a lot of capacity that you, you may not have been able to demonstrate previously. Well, Tom, that's all quite illuminating and thank you very much for your time. No, thanks for having me. It's been great to speak to you. And now let's talk to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. Well, Sinclair, the... Uh, the government's been in a whole lot of trouble with uh, infrastructure and uh, they've brought in a new program to scale back the production because it's causing labour shortages and inflation. What, what's your view about that? Uh, there's a whole bunch of things going on here at the moment, Leon. I mean, for a start, bearing in mind, we do have an inflationary problem. Um, inflation is running well above the Reserve Bank's uh, range of 2 to 3%. Um, this has been happening for a while. We've got changes at the Reserve Bank, so we've got a new governor as well. So um, how she responds to, to to inflation is also sort of an open question at the moment. And I think we should just step back and just remind ourselves where this inflation came from. So a couple of years ago, governments around the world locked down economies, paid people a whole bunch of money to stay at home, and we didn't have a lot of productive activity. So that, that inflation originates more or less from the COVID lockdowns. To be fair to the Reserve Bank, they were slow in responding to those inflation repressions because there were arguments at the time that the price changes that we were seeing were just a story about disrupted supply chains. I wasn't entirely convinced by that story, but I do think it's a fair enough story for the Reserve Bank to actually have not immediately responded to inflation repressions. But here we are, they are with us now. The challenge that we face is that one of the contributors to inflation is irresponsible spending. Now, a lot of people make the argument that we have a story about too much money chasing too few goods. The real issue is how does that money get into the economy? So think of the idea of empty calories. We've got good spending and we've got bad spending. The good spending is either consumption, private consumption, or government spending that adds to productive capacity. And the bad spending is government spending that doesn't add to productive capacity. The government at the moment has taken the view that a lot of the infrastructure spend that's been undertaken is probably excessive or they are building to too high a standard than what they otherwise should be doing. So they want to cut back on the amount of money they are pumping into the economy so that it becomes more consistent with the level of productive spending that we can expect. That is the logic behind their argument. Whether or not they actually succeed is a very different question. That is the logic. It seems to me fair enough. We should stop spending so much money, but we should stop spending not so much money just on infrastructure. But at the moment, government spending is also subsidizing a lot of consumption. So uh, Mr. Chalmers and Mr. Albanese need to have a good, long, hard look at their next budget. What is government spending money on? It's not only true the federal government chasing infrastructure, but also state government budgets. 
absolutely the, the 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 states and the federal government do need to get their you know their stories consistent and do need to become synchronized um i've seen a, a lot of news in the last week of the state governments heavily criticizing the federal government and of course the you know this this is how our federalism works uh, states and federal governments are supposed to be criticizing each other but certainly i think the state governments also do need to be making more of an effort to actually rein in some of their excessive infrastructure spending and a a lot of the spending that was initiated before COVID may be less necessary now after COVID. So they, they, they do need to all have a long, hard look at what they're doing. Uh, but uh, certainly some of it was uh, certainly in the case of what was in the Andrews government with their chasing infrastructure at that time and all the excessive building that was going. That certainly became like a hallmark of that regime, that this is what we're doing for you. Yes. And this is what we're leaving you. Because we're, <laughs> we're such a productive government. Yes, the the challenge with the with the Andrews government was that they had some very early infrastructure successes. They removed a lot of the boom gates and actually caused traffic to flow much easier. Um, they did a lot of spending there. There were a lot of traffic bottlenecks that were relieved when they did all that spending. Before COVID, they decided to start building a second city loop. Now, before COVID, that was probably a good idea. Um, after COVID, it's probably less of a good idea, but we're kind of now in the, the sunk cost fallacy. There, there are whole bits of the CBD that have been sort of cordoned off for future train stations. Now, ideally, you would mothball that particular project until it becomes necessary again sometime in the future. But what do you do with the cordoned off CBD area? You can't uncordon it off. Um, there's great big holes in the ground that just that either need to be filled up or blocked over or something. So they're, they're kind of stuck in a situation as to, you know, do we double down and just finish it, even though we might not need it for another 10 years or so. Um, think of the, the tunnel underneath the Westgate Bridge. The, the Westgate area is an absolute traffic nightmare at the moment, but it's not clear to me how you can mothball that project for a significant period of time. So they are kind of stuck. They were caught un unawares like everybody else else was with, with, with the COVID crisis. Uh, it's not obvious to me how they immediately fix that problem, but yes, it is a problem. Similarly, uh, they were regarded as a great political thing to build infrastructure. It was because people like infrastructure. You can see infrastructure. Uh, one of the, the, the sort of the political economy arguments around infrastructure is, um, I think it was the, the mayor of Chicago, Dewey, once said, you've got to spend the money where the people can see it. And infrastructure is where you can see the money being spent. The road outside my house got retired last year, even though it didn't need retiring. But uh, they retired the road and there's this big sign saying, your state government has retired your road. You should be grateful. Uh, we're not actually, but that's that, that, that's not the point. Uh, it's very hard to criticize a government for retiring a road or for fixing potholes or for building another bridge. So these things are politically pop popular, even though very often it results in unnecessary expenditure. And we are seeing the price of that unnecessary expenditure right now in the inflation numbers. And those inflation numbers are taking a very sticky and they're not going down very quickly. They are, they are not going down very quickly at all. And there's a combination of factors here. Fairly or unfairly, we've got a Labour government and people kind of think that Labour governments are going to be less willing to pursue spending cuts and fiscal consolidation. So the inflation expectations get built in, in, into, in, in, into people's forecasts of the future. Plus, there has been some turmoil around the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank governor changed. We've got a new Reserve Bank governor. It's very unfair to suspect that she's going to be 
be any softer on inflation than her predecessor was. But nonetheless, there, there is that thought that she might be. So people are going to have to observe the Reserve Bank for a while being tough on inflation before they temper back their inflationary expectations. And is there too much expectation on the Reserve Bank to cut inflation? Because, I mean, that's just the only mechanism they have is raising interest rates and uh, penalises certain people who are on mortgages, but other people get benefits from it. Yes. Uh, so, so you know, it's 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 not it's not a complete black and white picture. But uh, should the government be doing stuff with fiscal policy? Um, yes. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The government should be doing things with fiscal policy in addition to having higher interest rates. Um, as I've said to you before, Leon, um, raising interest rates is the is the economic equivalent of medical bleeding. You know, in the bad old days, you would slice somebody's wrists and you would bleed some blood out and then you would you would tape them up and hopefully the patient didn't die in the meantime. This is the, the economic equivalent of bleeding, but there are other things that can be done. So at the moment, in, in addition to, to monetary policy, which is, is is tightening up, at the moment still we have too loose fiscal policy. So we actually have government spending and borrowing too much money at the minute. And uh, the fiscal theory of, of inflation is that uh, the value of the currency appreciates or depreciates to equalize the real value of uh, government debt relative to spending and, and taxation. So the governments do actually need to spend less money and more importantly, they need to borrow less money. And you start off by borrowing less by spending less. To be fair, the current government is looking at some levels of expenditure. So they are cutting back on infrastructure expenditure. They are threatening to tighten up on things such as the NDIS and so on. But there is a lot more that actually needs to be done. We need to be looking at the full gamut of expenditure. So for example, can we really afford those submarines that we are buying from the Americans? And I've kind of put it to you that we, we, we probably can't. Um, so um, all levels of government expenditure should be opened up and had a look at and we've got to actually stop spending money. Now, when, when I say spending money, I actually mean the government needs to stop writing checks. Because a lot of people say, take the view that spending money is giving subsidies or, 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 or not collecting taxation or what have you. Spending money in this particular instance means the government needs to stop writing checks to people and needs to stop borrowing on international markets. Uh, that's what they really need to do. But in order to do that, they need to look at other things that they are, are doing. So we need a whole of government approach. And as I said before, fairly or unfairly, Labour governments are viewed, generally speaking, as less willing to do that sort of thing. And politically, that could be quite an issue for the government. It is, it is. And bearing in mind, we've got a first-term government and we're halfway through the first term of a new government and halfway through the first term of every new government, there's a bit of a wobble when the, the honeymoon period runs out and everybody realises they've actually got to work hard to stay in government. So things start becoming a bit tough. 
and going into your first re-election, no politician wants to be seen as being mean-hearted or, or remember uh, the, the, the John Howard expression, mean and tricky. Um, you know, so the, the, the political challenges for the government are, are real um, and they are serious. And uh, they do need to start thinking a lot harder than sort of the wishful thinking that got them elected in the first place. Yes, less hubris. Much, much less hubris. But bearing in mind we are dealing with politicians and hubris is actually part of the the the, the, the set that you get when you get a politician. And especially first-term government, there's a lot of hubris when they arrive. And we're halfway through the session where all of a sudden they start realizing, well, you know, the population aren't as happy with them as they thought. Um, and tough decisions need to be made. These are these are sort of the normal run of the mill. And it just so happens that all of these factors are sort of coinciding at the same time. So fun times ahead. Well, Sinclair, thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. So what's happening in the news? Well, inflation has decelerated in the year to October from 5.6% the month before, ahead of the Reserve Bank's last board meeting of the year on Tuesday. The welcome and sharp decline in the annual growth rate of consumer prices comes after surging energy and fuel prices drove annual inflation higher in August and September. The latest figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics come after the RBA hike rates to 4.35% on Melbourne Cup Day, citing a growing concern that consumer price growth was proving stickier than hope. Investors are pricing a 10% chance of another rate rise next week, and economists believe that any further tightening is more likely to come in February. And Treasury Jim Chalmers will next week begin the biggest overhaul of the Reserve Bank since its inception, including creating a new board to set official interest rates, increasing the governor's independence and narrowing the bank's mandate to control the inflation and keeping unemployment as low as possible. Chalmers will introduce to Parliament a series of changes to RBA's 64-year-old governing legislation that will also give the bank new powers to deal with emerging payment systems such as Apple Pay and Google Pay. The coalition is likely to support much of the legislation, as the major parties seek to avoid any minor party tinkering, but there are concerns within the Liberal Party about government appointments to the boards that will oversee both the bank and monetary policy. The review of the Reserve Bank, released in April, recommended sweeping changes to the institution, which, unlike its overseas peers, had not undergone an independent evaluation since the early 1980s. The biggest single change will be the creation of a board that will set official interest rates, while the Governance Board will oversee the RBA's day-to-day operation. The Reserve's 1,575 staff are involved in operations, such as the nation's payment systems, rather than economists and analysts. The review argued a separate monetary policy board would bring Australia into line with world's best practice and enable its members to focus more intently on the state of the economy and interest rates set. The RBA practice of meeting monthly, which which is unlike almost every other major central bank in the world, will be replaced with a move to eight two-day meetings a year. And Jim Chalmers has appointed Bank of England official Andrew Hauser as the Reserve Bank's next deputy governor, filling a role that has been empty since Governor Michelle Bullock was appointed to the top job in mid-September and as the central bank undergoes its biggest overhaul in a generation. Mr Howes's appointment was confirmed in a cabinet meeting on Monday morning to take on a role that will grant him a vote on interest rate decisions affecting millions of mortgage households. The 30-year veteran of the BOE is currently Executive Director for Markets, responsible for managing the BOE's balance sheet and the United Kingdom's Foreign Exchange Reserve, and has held a range of senior positions, including representing the United Kingdom as a member of the IMF's Executive Board in Washington, D.C. He'll be the first foreigner to hold such a position within the bank. The Treasurer in the statement said Mr Hauser brought international expertise in economics and central bank operations, days ahead of Labor introducing legislation as part of a process to reinvigorate and refresh the RBA. And a court has awarded indemnity costs 
against war veteran Ben Robert Smith for the entirety of his failed defamation case against Nine Entertainment. The civil case was dismissed in the Federal Court in June, where Justice Anthony Basenko found there were substantial truth allegations of four murders in Afghanistan and the bullying of a Special Air Service Regiment, SAS colleague, since then a complicated battle over who foots a huge legal bill has unfolded. Indemnity costs com- compensate a successful party to a higher level than what a court would more commonly order after a legal case. Mr Robert Smith previously accepted he should pay costs on an indemnity basis only as far back as March 2020, when the publisher made a second offer to settle. In my opinion, the applicant should pay the respondent's costs assessed on an indemnity basis from the commencement of the proceedings, Justice Basenko said in a written decision. The case was initiated in August 2018. Journalist Chris Masters, one of the respondents, has previously said it took five years and about $30 million to defend the case. An ASIS-listed Stephanie West Media's and TV network will continue paying the rent of former Liberal staffer and accused rapist Bruce Lehrman in Sydney until June next year. In return for interviews, he gave its flagship Spotlight's investigations program. The revelation emerged in cross-examination in, in the New South Wales Federal Court on Tuesday afternoon in the defamation case he's brought against Network 10 and its former star journalist Lisa Wilkinson. And Origin Energy will hold talks with foreign suitors, Brookfield and EIG, about whether the pair could improve their $20 billion takeover bid amid doubts over the value of a Plan B lobbed last week. The company's board has already said a revised offer appears inferior after a last-minute deal was tabled on Wednesday night, which led to a scheme meeting on Thursday being delayed. Origin Energy's board is leaning towards rejecting the Plan B proposal lobbed by its suitors, Canada's Brookfield and its private equity partner EIG, as a last-ditch attempt to buy the ASX-listed electricity and gas giant. It may now look to test whether an alternative bid could be brought to the table given the complexity in questions over valuations from the current offer. The board had yet to settle on a position on Sunday, but held reservations over aspects of the reworked offer and may look to hold further talks before reconvening for a final decision. One option may look at whether any middle ground could be found between the investor suitors and Australian Super, Origin's largest shareholder, whose opposition to the original pitch largely sunk the buyout. Brookfield and EIG late on Wednesday submitted a revised offer that will see shareholders offered $9.43 a share, but if that bid is rejected by shareholders, Brookfield and EIG have proposed an alternative structure that sees shareholders offered $9.08 a share. And the millions of Australians and thousands of businesses left without phone and internet service during the crippling Optus outage are being asked to make submissions to a government-led review aimed at better safeguarding the country in case of future incidents. About 10 million people and 400,000 businesses were impacted during the November the 8th outage. A separate Greens-led Senate inquiry earlier this month heard from the former Chief Executive Colleague Bayard Rosemarin before she quit that more than 200 triple-O calls could not be made while Optus customers were left without service. The review will report on and make recommendations regarding the function of triple-O during the outage and will look where the reforms are needed. Communications Minister Michelle Rowland said the review was an opportunity for industry, government and the community to consider what lessons could be learnt from the outage, noting that no network is immune. Optus confirmed changes to routing information after a routine software upgrade was behind the national outage. And Optus is appealing a court ruling that could lead to the release of a forensic report into last year's cyber attack, as a Commonwealth review into this month's phone and internet outage gets underway. Optus is trying to stop class-action law firm Slater and Gordon getting hold of a report that the telecommunications group commissioned from Deloitte into its 2022 cyber attack, which led to the personal information of some 10,200 customers being posted online. Earlier this month, the Federal Court's Justice Jonathan Beach ruled that Optus could not claim legal professional privileges to keep the full report secret. The court, which said Optus may be able to redact some of the part of the Deloitte report, ordered the telco group to give the report to Slater and Gordon unless it successfully appealed the judge's decision. Slater and Gordon wants to use the Deloitte report in a class action. 
case that alleges a telecoms failed to protect the personal information of its customers. Class Action's practice group leader, Ben Hardwick, said it was disappointing that the Optus appeared to be refusing to accept the umpire's decision. Our clients who were impacted by this data breach just want this case to move forward, and Optus is putting up another roadblock to their pass of justice, Mr Hardwick said. Former Optus Chief Executive Kelly Bay Rosemarin, who resigned on November the 17th, told the Senate inquiry that the Deloitte report was highly sensitive because it contained a forensic investigation into the company's cyber defences. And cost of living expenses are having more impact on domestic tourism than international as travellers save their money for trips abroad. Tourism Research Australia's annual five-year forecast, released on Tuesday, says domestic travel has gone backwards in 2023 after a strong rebound in 2022. The number of domestic visitor nights is forecast to fall 4.1% this year compared to last year and still be down 2.6% on 2022 levels by 2027. Increased competition from international outbound travel and cost of living pressures leading to reduced discretionary spending are considered the main barriers to domestic travel. In contrast, international travel continued to climb, with numbers tipped to reach record highs in 2025, when more than 10 million overseas rivals are expected. To date, visitors from Asia have returned the fastest, with arrivals from Vietnam, Thailand, the Philippines and India already exceeding pre-pandemic levels. Other international markets, such as New Zealand, China, Japan, Singapore, Canada, the US and Britain, are forecast to return to 2019 numbers in 2025, while visitors from Europe are likely to take longer. That is attributed to negative consumer sentiment towards long-haul flights in Europe, where concern about carbon emissions and global warming is highest. Australian Travel Industry Association Chief Executive Dean Long said members were certainly seeing a slowdown in domestic travel, largely as a result of competition from international markets. An industry superannuation fund, Unisuper, is facing rising demands from members that adopt more rigorous and science-based decarbonisation targets. More than 1,650 people have signed a petition calling on the fund to strengthen its net zero emission target, and 370-plus academics have signed an open letter demanding the same as consumer and regulatory pressure rises on funds to act on their green claims. Unisuper, which is one of the most educated member bases in the industry due to its roots in the default fund for Unisaf, has been under pressure from customers over its climate policies for several years. It updated its climate policies after a tense standoff in 2020. The fund pitches itself as one of the most sustainably focused in the 35 trillion retirement savings sector, imposing net zero targets on its broader portfolio as well as ESG-specific options. But Unisuper customers who sign the petition and open letter are demanding the fund adopt short-term, medium-term and net zero targets in the next 12 months that are based on science-based and Paris Agreement-aligned benchmarks. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission is planning a crackdown on consumer contracts for anything from airline tickets to houses, with a former insider tipping prosecutions before Christmas. In changes hailed as the biggest shift in consumer law for 20 years, standard form contracts which include unfair terms can now attract fines of up to $50 million after years of light-touch regulation. Until November 9, courts could only declare terms of a contract unfair and void, a regime which the ACCC said had failed to lead to meaningful change. However, the landmark case against Qantas over cancelled flights has led to a late flurry of changes to standard contracts issued by insurance companies, builders, telcos, airline ticket agencies and transport companies. In indication of the likely areas of concern, matters recently pursued by the regulator include clauses that gave horticultural wholesaler Nutrano absolute discretion to change produce specifications and allow Great Co Farms to to terminate agreements and withhold part payments. In 2022, Fujifilm had 38 terms in its small business contracts providing for automatic renewal. 
excessive exit fees and unilateral price increases. No reliance clauses requiring agreement by one party that has read extraneous documents that included liability for other representations were also found to be unfair. Other clauses commonly seen in construction industry contracts which may be considered unfair are unreasonable time bars and termination for convenience clauses without appropriate compensation. University of New South Wales Associate Professor Rob Nichols, a former partner at Gilbert and Tobin, who worked alongside current ACCC Chair Gina Cascotley for 12 years after two years at ASIC, said he expected the first announcement of a prosecution before Christmas. And disposable vapes won't be allowed into Australia from New Year's Day under the Federal Government's bold plans to stop a new generation becoming addicted to nicotine. Australia's ambition to become the first country to limit vaping to people with a prescription will be rolled out in several phases next year, starting with an import ban on single-use products and an expanded access scheme for medical use from the start of 2024. Health Minister Matt Butler's crackdown aims to stop a thriving black market that imports millions of flavoured disposable baked from China and sells them to young Australians on social media or under the counter in convenience stores. Expanded access to vaping prescriptions will be a vital part of the reforms because legal pathways must become easier to stop people seeking out products on the black market. All doctors and nurse practitioners will be able to prescribe vapes from the new year, but the success of the scheme will rely on a shift in approach from medical professionals who have been largely unwilling to prescribe vapes as a smoking cessation tool. Health and police ministers agreed to the changes at a meeting last week. Further changes that will apply from March include a ban on people importing their own vaping products and on the import of all non-therapeutic vapes. Vape importers will also have to obtain a permit from the federal government and notify the Therapeutic Goods Administration that their products comply with new standards. The new product standards to be strengthened in 2024 will limit flavours, reduce maximum nicotine concentration and require pharmaceutical packaging, but businesses will be given a transition period to comply. The government will also introduce legislation next year to prevent the manufacturing, advertising, supply and commercial possession of non-therapeutic and single-use vapes in Australia. A national vaping working group will oversee the plan, while $25 million will go to the Australian Border Force and $56.9 million to the Therapeutic Goods Administration over two years to enforce a crackdown. Butler's decision to pursue an all-out ban was opposed by industry groups who called on the government to reap tax revenue from commercial vape sales instead and by harm-reducing experts who warned prohibition rarely works. Enforcement experts have also warned the ban will be difficult to police given the scale of the black market and the fact that vapes alongside illicit tobacco have become a lucrative market for organised crime groups because they offer high profit margins with smaller penalties than the narcotics. And less than one-third of the top Australian companies have adopted science-based climate targets with a major green body warning companies face a crackdown with tougher disclosure rules set to start in July 2024. Ahead of the COP28 climate summit starting in Odopaya on November 30th, the Climate Leaders Coalition said only 29% of some of Australia's biggest companies had taken up Scope 3 emissions target, which are those produced outside of companies' direct industrial processes. The CLC has instructed member companies to accelerate cuts to Scope 3 emissions or face significant commercial consequences with strict new reporting standards mandating scope through commitments and reporting from July 2024. The progress in elevating women into Australia's top corporate roles has stalled despite the country's pay gap narrowing to the lowest in more than a decade. The average annual pay difference between men and women narrowed by $1,322 to $26,393, a drop of 1.1 percentage points since last year. It's the second largest annual decrease since the Workplace Gender Equality Agency began surveying employers in 2014 for its employer census, which this year covered 4.8 million workers. While the proportion of women in management has been increasing at every level, that doesn't include Chief Executive Officer, the WGEA report showed. Across the workforce, the proportion of female board members remained the same as 2022, 
just 34%, while 22% of CEOs were women. The agency's report comes as Australia takes a step to confront its wage disparity, which is slightly below the OECD average. The nation ranks 26 on the 2023 Global Gender Gap Index is topped by Iceland, Finland, Norway and New Zealand. Starting next year, individual companies with 100 workers or more will be required to report their gender pay gap data on a yearly basis as part of new income equality legislation. Currently, the results are only disclosed by industry rather than by company. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Ben Fitzgerald, the CEO of business payment service Zeller, and I'll be talking to financial analyst Tim Buckley, the Director of Climate Energy Finance, about the Brookfield EIG battle to take over Origin. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, in Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon.leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.